You're listening to The Takeaway from WNYC and PRI Public Radio International in collaboration with the BBC World Service, the New York Times, and WGBH Boston Public Radio. I mentioned this yesterday on the show as part of my little tour of my week in London. The Olympics are everywhere. London, that city of oldness, of Magna Cartas, palaces, Elgin marbles, marble arches, and Rosetta Stones, is on a shiny new mission. And the guy in charge of that mission? You met him for a moment yesterday, Paul Dayton, a man in a glass office overlooking the Thames, a man in a hurry, a man, you might say, riding a comet and facing a looming deadline, the 27th of July. I don't think anyone's ever involved in a project like this. I mean, this is um, immense in terms of scale compared with just about anything else. You know, the Olympics and Paralympics have something like, you know, 16,500 athletes, 20,000 journalists, 35 competition venues, 150 total venues, 11 million tickets if you put it all together. It is just massive in terms of scale. As you can hear, Paul Dayton, developer, investment banker, and manager of the Olympic 2012 effort, is talking about two big events, the Olympics and the Paralympics. And Dayton says not only is this a big moment for London and the U.K., it's the first time in a while the Olympics has gone to one of the mature industrialized economies. It's a test and he means to pass it. In, if you look at the cities that have been awarded these major events, you know, it's been in the emerging markets. You know, we've, had, we've got Brazil for the World Cup in 2014, the Olympics in 2016. We had China clearly in 2008. We've got Sochi in Russia for the 2014 uh, Games. You've, you know, you've got uh, Qatar and Russia for the next two World Cups after Brazil. And, you know, it's interesting that you say one of the mature industrialized uh, countries actually got the Olympics in 2012. So, a, you know, and, and, and it, that really does put into context your question. So what's it for? Because clearly these big emerging countries really, really want it and are prepared to invest behind it. A, because it sort of says something about their emergence to their own people and to the world. And B, because in many cases they have a greener field where they're just building stuff for the future. And, and the fascinating challenge for us is, you know, we're clearly a very mature city here in London. You know, we had to think very, very carefully about value for money. And it's still, I think, the main consideration for the population here. So the legacy, as we described it, has been absolutely fundamental to everything that went on as we constructed the bid right through the build process, right into the staging process, and all the benefits we'll try to milk as we go ahead. So if you look at the most obvious part of the legacy, which is the investment in the Lower Lee Valley in the Olympic Park, which is you know, essentially a £6 billion investment in a chunk of land about the size of Hyde Park in East London, you know, the whole objective is to get East London to converge to the social and economic standard of West London, and all this had to take place within those seven years. And that process, with the best will in the world, if we'd embarked on it as a national program, would have taken 20 or 30 years without the Olympic Games. There's no one who's ever been involved in something like this who would give you a shorter timetable to get anything close to that done uh, that we've accomplished through the Games. So you're right. Theoretically, you ought to be able to take the money and spend it absent the Games. It just never happens because the timetable and the deadline are critical. The emotion and the psychological impact of hosting the world's biggest event 
and having the world come to town is immense. You know, it, it's often it's often hard to sort of in, understand. You know, where where the economics stops and the inspiration begins. But you know, great projects which have that kind of success need both. And you know, the games is what is you know is what brings it. There's going to be obviously focus on the uh, uh, athletic competition that takes place between uh, various countries in the world, the powers in each sport, and who's going to challenge them. Um, there'll also be a bit of competition among the media, uh, the uh, English-speaking American media versus the English-speaking and very formidable British media in covering these games. Uh, how bitter is that rivalry going to be in these games, particularly for an American audience? Oh, I think you know the, the competition between the media. I mean, in, in our, I think you know our media is um, is probably regarded as sort of some of the uh, you know the most challenging in the world. I mean, and that's been the environment in which we've uh, in which we've delivered the games. I mean, our media have, have always been the ones, for example, who have been the first to look at some of the issues when other people have delivered games. You know, we were probably the first to question whether the Athens construction was happening on time. So you're right, you know, the Brits have a strong view about sport both domestically and internationally, and this is very much their home games. You know, generally speaking, I don't really think about it like that. I think this is, you know, the beauty of the Olympic Games is that it is the best international gathering the world has. You know, over 200 countries come together. It's what gives it its entire spirit and atmosphere. And for me, that, you know, that'll pervade the, uh, the media centre just as much as it will the athletics track. So how does it work here? You do a great job. The games are fantastic. Obviously, there's you know numbers to be looked at. There's there's the the metrics of success and ratings and all that. Uh, but at the end of the day, do you get a call from the Queen? <laughs> well, I hope we get a call from the Queen earlier because we hope she's going to open both the Olympic Games and the Paralympic Games. So I think that's the uh, that's the only call from the Queen <laughs> focused on at the moment. Getting a call from the Queen. Oh, yeah. Or Blondie, for that matter. That's Paul Dayton, Chief Executive Officer of the London 2012 Olympics and reportedly on very good terms with Her Majesty, the Queen. He's also the head of the Paralympic Games. And all over London, you can uh, see the developments of uh, both of these contests. It's actually the third time London has held these games. Uh, It did it first back in 1908 and then in 1948 in addition to 2012. And some of the venues in the 2012 Olympics actually date from those times, although much of the construction will be new. There are facilities all over uh, the the country. It's uh, not all in London. It's not as centralized as the Beijing Games. And one of the interesting things is the equestrian events will be held right at the uh, origin of Greenwich Mean Time. The observatory there in Greenwich will be the site of the equestrian events. So what are you looking forward to? I, I mean, I love all the events. I mean, I even love, like, table tennis. Can, can I just mention what I'm not looking forward to? Sure. And then suddenly, the rainbow is back. Wenlock and Mandeville know that it's time to go. Their journey is just beginning, but they will meet again in London in 2012. Do you know what that is? For the mascots, yeah, right? Yeah. The, yeah, those mascots really get on my nerves. But the, the games itself? Can't wait. Well, London's, London can handle a little rain on their parade, I think. <laughs> I hope they can. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. 
In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.